I, I've got a fairly healthy ego. I think I'm a talented writer. I think I'm a smart guy. I think I'm perceptive. Yeah, we know. It is time once again for Writing in Real Life, a podcast about writing, publishing, parenthood, and marriage. I'm Barry Liga. She's Morgan Baden. Let's get started. You guys should see the sheer joy on Barry's face every time he switches up the intro without telling me. Yeah. It makes his day. It does. <laughs> I, I have to take my victories where I can get them. So apparently the sky is falling. The world is ending. And I'm not even talking about Donald Trump. I was going to say, we're looking at the same poll numbers, I guess. I'm talking about a story recently in Publishers Weekly that stated that the five largest book publishers. The big five. The big five, as we call them around the house. <laughs> uh, saw no sales growth or, or negative sales growth in the first half of 2016. Right. So uh, when you met, you said the sky is falling, you meant the publishing industry sky is falling. Is there any other kind that matters <laughs> in this house? This was a very interesting article. Uh, in reading it, apparently most of the blame goes to eBooks. Yeah. In that apparently sales of eBooks have gone down. Mm -hmm. uh, sales of print books have remained pretty steady. eBook sales, however, have dropped in the first half of 2016. Um, for those of us who make a living in publishing, as we both do, this isn't the sort of thing you like to hear. Obviously, it does not mean that, that you know, apocalypse has come to the publishing business, but it's just not a good thing. And, you know, one of the things that I noticed was that, uh, for example, Penguin, uh, the CEO of Penguin stated that one of the their their problems was that they had no big hits such as Girl on a Train or Grey from from last year, which were the, the big books that sort of boosted them last year. Do you mean Fifty Shades of Grey? What's gray? No, gray. You don't know. Gray is the book that she wrote, which is Fifty Shades of Gray from his point of view. Oh. You don't remember that? Come, didn't that just come out? No. Oh, okay. Listen, time, time and me are, are not friends right now. So anyway, this was, this, you know, this is part of what he, he brought up uh, as a, a reason why, you know, sales might have been down. And it was just, it, it's very interesting to see that because we talk a lot about publishing and the industry and what's going right and what's going wrong. And here's just sort of this, it's hard numbers. You know, yeah. there's, there's, there's not much to quibble with in these numbers. And obviously, you know, the second half of the year could shoot up and be great. And next year could be terrific. So, you know, despite my tongue in cheek opening, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, it's not like I'm sitting here going, Oh my God, I, I need to go build a bomb shelter. But it just is interesting to see me. What, what do you think about yeah. this? Well, it's twofold. So really one is the decline of ebook sales. And the second is what has been the big hit of 2016 so far. And you're right. I don't, I don't think there has been one, has there? Well, no. And that's sort of something that I've been thinking about a lot. And I was talking to a friend of mine at the Brooklyn Book Festival the other day about this. And, you know, Hollywood is sort of a hit-driven town. Mm -hmm. Movies are a hit-driven industry. You make an Avengers movie, you make a billion dollars, you're in good shape, you're fine. And I feel like publishing is starting to take on some of those habits. Mm -hmm. Looking for the big hits, looking for the the one book that justifies everything else yeah. that they do. And I just to clarify too for listeners, um, those big hit books are really important because the sales from those big hit books are what allow publishers oftentimes to pay decent advances to books that aren't going to be or don't turn out to be big hits, right? Right. So I, I want to stress like those big books are important in a lot of different ways. One of them being it allows 
mid-list writers to continue making a living writing books. And this is actually the problem that I have. Yeah. Because I'm not sure that that's the most sensible well, model. Well, I mean, whether it's sensible like, or I, not, I understand that is the how, I understand yeah. how it works. I think in some ways for the movie industry to be hit-driven is sort of sensible and a sensible evolution of how the movie industry works. There are actually very few movies made every year. So you're looking for one or two really big ones because there are so few made. Yeah. There are a lot of books published every year. I believe there are 20,000 children's books alone each year. I mean, there are a lot Mm -hmm. of books published. We're not even talking about self-published. No, yeah. We're talking about just books that are published by traditional publishers Mm -hmm. of any size. There are a lot of them. And I think hoping that one of them will be a big enough hit to pay for all the rest. Yeah. I'm not sure that's the smartest business model, man. It's certainly a flawed business model. I'm just saying that's what it is currently. So it's, um, you know, it's interesting when that doesn't happen. Um, But the other thing I do want to talk about is the decline in ebook sales. Um, Scholastic is not considered one of the big five. Right. And that is something that we discovered several years ago was that ebooks were not living up to the promise that right. they everyone had thought they would live up to. Um, we should say, by the way, that if Scholastic were one of the big five, we probably wouldn't be able to talk about this on the show. Probably, because yeah. Because you really can't talk no, about your yeah. company's financials. No, of course not. Um, on the show. So if if I, I guess if ever there is some big sort of Scholastic thing that we have to talk about on the show, we'll have to just bring in another guest. I and know, you won't be yeah. able to be on the show. Yeah. But anyway, go ahead. No, but I'm just saying, like, this is something, to be frank, publishers knew a couple of years ago. Yeah. Like, ebooks were not changing the industry as much as they were promised to. I mean, they've certainly changed the parameters of self-publishing. Of course, yeah. But for traditional publishers, yeah, they right. haven't. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting to me that they've dropped because I'm a, I'm a pretty solid ebook reader, as yeah. we all know, um, just for sheer convenience sake. You're like a Kindle in human form. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I would like to look at the numbers behind and the, the thinking behind why those are dropping. Yeah, I'm curious. And, you know, th- this whole, this article was brought to my attention because uh, Daniel Nayeri, who is an editor, a bigwig at Workman Publishing, was tweeting about it. And Workman is not one of the, the big five. Right. And basically he was saying, hey, we had a great year. Um, basically saying because we're trying different things. I was going to say Workman's philosophy is very different yeah. from those of the big five, and he which was, is branch he, out. Right. He sort of castigated. Uh, the the large publishers for basically doing the same thing they've always done yeah. uh, over the years and not changing and having the exact same reaction to this bad news as they've had to bad news in the past. Yeah. And this, this ties in with what we've talked about on the show a lot in the past is now is the time to try new things. Mm-hmm. Now is the time to go crazy and to try something different. And, and, you know, we both know a lot of people in publishing, obviously, there are a lot of really smart, talented people in publishing. And for all we know, somewhere there is a door you can only get through by scanning your retina. And there's a secret project going on in there that's really cool. I hope so. That could change, that could change things a lot. So if there is, then, you know, mea culpa. Or whatever the Latin is for, it's our fault, not it's my <laughs> fault. But I'm just not seeing any evidence of it. It's been a long time since the ebook quote unquote revolution and since Amazon became the 800 pound gorilla in the industry. And there's been zero indication that anybody has anything they're even willing to try. Yeah. And that really bothers me. Like, like 
What are we waiting for? This is the time to try something crazy. This, this, this is the time to pull out those weird ideas and, you know, I, I just don't understand to why it's not happening. publishing. Yeah. I mean, if you don't disrupt your own industry, it will be disrupted for you and you will lose. Yeah. You know? And there are, you know, the music industry learned that the hard way. Yep. Uh, the, the cell phone industry learned that. The cell phone industry really learned that the hard the way. The television industry. The television industry is currently learning that mm-hmm. the hard way. I, I hope they're getting some kind of knowledge from mm-hmm. it. Um, and, and the book industry. Just not there yet. Just not there yet. And, and I don't know why. And I, and I, I think part of it is because publishing, publishing began as a gentleman's industry, a gentleman's gambit. It wasn't supposed to be a huge multinational industry of conglomerates. I mean, publishing houses are called houses because they were literally run out of people's houses back in the day. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, it it, it was considered a gentleman's pursuit. It was, you know, oh, I'm going to, you know, find beautiful poetry and publish it for people. And, and that's how it began. Mm -hmm. And that's why all the, you know, the, the publishers you're aware of have names like little Brown because it was two guys named little and Brown and so on and so forth. Um, and, and that's how it began. And it still has those, those, those early, um, that early vibe to it. Um, in, in the attitude and the way it does business, but it's multi-billion dollar corporations now and something's got to give either split things up and let them be little houses again, Mm. or start thinking like the big boys, because, you know, uh, there's a lot of times people cry that, that the industry is cash poor, you know, they're comparing it to video games and and movies, but again, multi-billion dollar corporations, you can't cry poverty when you're a multi-billion dollar international corporation. Um, there are things that can be done. There are things that should be tried. Uh, and, and I wish we saw some evidence. Like I said, maybe there's that black room somewhere with the retina scanner, but I, I don't see it. But I do think in regards to, um, Daniel Nayeri's Twitter storm, yeah. I think you should link to that in the show notes. I will. So and I'll also link to the publisher's weekly article, obviously. Yeah. So that people can see this for themselves. Um, you know, it, it, it's just interesting. And if you care about publishing, it's, it's something to think about. Well, not even publishing. If you care, if you care about books at all. Well, yeah. If yeah. you care about books, if you're a reader at all, which means you care about publishing because without publishing, there's no books. <laughs> uh, this leads us very naturally, I think to a, a wonderful article. <laughs> I say wonderful, uh, <laughs> article that was in Marie Claire that you sent to me. And the article is titled, I published my debut novel to critical acclaim. And then I promptly went broke. Which could probably be the story of many, of many people. people. I mean, sure, I suspect yeah. there's a lot of people. Um, it was written by uh, Merritt Tears. I've actually read this book. Yes. The book is called Love Me Back. Um, so it showed up, this article showed up in my Facebook feed, and I was immediately like, click, because A, I've read the book, and B, this is a hell of a headline. Yeah. So do you want to summarize the, the article since you're the one who first sure, saw it? Sure, yeah. So basically, she, um, this book, Love Me Back, it was her debut novel, got a lot of critical acclaim when it was released. And she, um, uh, just to give some context, a lot of people, when they sell their debut novel, they, they get two book deals, particularly in the YA industry. That's a thing. Um, I don't think it's as big a thing in the adult industry, adult industry. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, usually that's a 34 picture deal. Yes. Um, anyway, she only got a one book deal and she didn't, she purposely did not want a two book deal. And because she didn't want to be beholden to right. to a deadline or to another book under a certain topic, whatever. Um, and as a result, she because, basically because she didn't have any deadlines, um, she didn't write much and ended up 
not having any money to live on. So got some random jobs along the way, uh, including becoming a letter carrier for the U S postal service, which I thought was really interesting. Right. And, and she talks about why that was good for her and in what ways, um, what am I missing here? Well, I think to me, the big thing was that, you know, there are any number of stories of people who published a book and then just disappeared. Uh, my friend, Terry Truman calls them one and done. Um, one hit wonders. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but the thing here is that this book came out to rave reviews. Right. From I mean, I think, I think places. that's the big thing is yeah. that she had a lot of critical acclaim yeah. from all the places that matter. Uh-huh. And um, then from the places where if you are a novelist, you're hoping for the acclaim she got yeah. and she got all of that acclaim and, and then it all just evaporated and went to hell. Yeah. And like you said, she started taking other jobs just to make ends meet because she was broke and, and found that she then didn't have the, the strength to, to, uh, to write yeah. by the end, at the end of every day, which I think we're both sympathetic to having mm-hmm. both work day jobs. Um, and so that to me is, is what was really interesting was that she had as Barring the fact that she didn't have any movie interest, she had as close to an ideal launch scenario as, as you, you could, could have. Yeah, that's so true. And it completely fell apart on her. Yeah. And she says... In- but, but I think actually, instead of saying it completely fell apart on her, what really happened was nothing happened. Right. It's not like right. then, you know, her world blew up. Right. Basically, just then nothing else happened right. nothing afterwards. Nothing else happened. Yeah, um, that's true. So... It was, you know, slight nuance there, but, right. um, no, but important. Yeah. And, and so I think this, a lot of the conversation I've been seeing around this, because of course we've both seen lots of writers sharing this article on Twitter and on Facebook, um, is people then saying basically, well, the mistake she made was not getting a two book deal. Yeah. And that to me was very interesting because uh-huh. I remember, um, you know, I had a two book deal. That was my first deal. And then, uh, when the time came to sell my third book, mm-hmm. Uh, my agent said to me, oh, you know, they're talking about a two-book deal. But I said, you weren't interested. And I said, excuse me? <laughs> and she said, well, I, you know, most of my clients don't want the pressure of being obligated to produce this other book that they haven't even started on yet or, or even conceived of yet. And I said, oh, no. I, I want that. That's what like, I need. Yeah. Like, honestly, if they want to sign me to a 300-book deal, yeah. I'll take it right now. I know. It's funny to think about. For some people, the perspective is that's a, that's pressure that right. you don't want. For other people, that's no, that's stability that I do want. And I know well, that I will have another and, paycheck. Well, and also my feeling is I'm gonna write a book anyway. Yeah, yeah. So may as well get a book. Might as well sell it yeah. in advance. Um, I do want to talk about how she closed this well, essay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about that because that's something, fascinating. Something we've talked about before. You've talked about before, right. um, and it happens very rarely. Right, there's. I like, believe so. I uh, mean, th- th- this is. But let's say what it is first, and then okay. let's get into it. So the her ideal scenario that she closes this essay out with is saying, "I would rather make forty thousand dollars a year, be on your salary, just to write my books as they come to me." Right. So in other words, a publisher instead of saying we'll give you X amount for this book as an advance against royalties, blah blah blah, they just say we'll hire you as an employee for forty thousand dollars a year, and just no advance, no royalties, no nothing. You just write, and when you're done with the book, we'll publish it. Yep, and it doesn't matter if the book becomes a superstar. Right, you're just getting your forty. You're getting your year. forty grand. Yeah, and she says she says you know I could make a lot more than forty thousand uh-huh. doing something else. Uh-huh. I mean I'm qualified and skilled enough to get another job, but. I want to write mm-hmm. and I would be willing, you know, just for $40,000 a year to know that I'm going to make that. I am fascinated by that. Yeah. I've always been fascinated by that idea. Um, my I would agent, love to do a survey about what people's numbers are. Yeah. 
Like, what would you do that for? Right, right. There, there are problems with with Naturally. it. Obviously, you know, one is what if you write something that they don't want to publish? Right. Are you allowed to take it somewhere else? Uh-huh. Are you allowed to self-publish it, or does it just sit in a drawer? That would be like death to me to write a book and then not be allowed to do anything with it. Um, I also think that one problem is the publisher has very little incentive to do much with it mm-hmm. because they're paying you what comes down to not a huge amount of money. And they know that if this book of yours doesn't do anything, well, they're going to get another one. Right. And they'll yeah. probably, you know, it's no skin off their yeah, backs. There's no yeah. skin off their backs. The other thing I would worry about is, um, I guess basically approval or like how much input would the publisher have into your book as you're writing it? Right. Does it become a book packaging kind of deal? Well, like an And alloy? that's what I say. What if they don't want to publish yeah, it? Because yeah. otherwise, I mean, you could find yourself being basically, you, you know, I mean, basically getting the worst of all possible worlds. Yeah. Not that much money, no royalties. And on top and of no that, book. you have to write what they tell you to. Right. Otherwise you're not even going to get anything published. Yeah. So there's a lot that's wrong with it. But, you know, my agent once told me, I believe she said it was Norman Mailer. That's okay. That's who I'm thinking of. Yeah. That Norman Mailer was basically an employee. That he had gotten to a point where pretty much what happened was the publisher just said, we will pay you X amount every year. And whenever you finish a book, we'll publish it. Yeah. That's pretty. I mean, that is pretty cool. I mean, especially if you can manage to retain some sort of royalty structure and some sort of rights situation where you get movie rights and things like that. It's tough because a publisher obviously is going to say, well, we're, you know, we're going to give you X amount of dollars every year, but there's no guarantee you're going to write a book every year. So, you know, we Uh need something to sweeten it on our end. Uh, but I, I think about that a lot. I mean, like, I have said, you know, there were, there were times in the past before I married somebody with health insurance where I was like, <laughs> I was like, I would do a book for cheap if a publisher would just put me on their health insurance, right? Yeah, you know, because uh-huh. health insurance was killing me. It was so expensive. Yeah. This was before Obamacare. Um, so, but it is when I think about if the time ever comes where I have to decide, like if I ever actually publish a book right. and have to make some kind of decision, like the biggest risk to me is that lack of stability. So, right. you know, a deal like that is very attractive to me. Yeah. And, and it's, again, this dovetails nicely with how we open the show because this is some, the sort of thing that a publisher could try. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, this is the kind of thing where, you know, you could try sort of like gathering a stable of publishers. Yeah. I mean, of, of authors. I think it does though, make me remember something from, from my own past. I think publishers are, I think publishers want to do well for their authors, but I think they're also afraid of doing too well for their authors. (laughs) And back in the days when I worked for a living, I was a marketing guy and that was funny because I had zero marketing experience. I had, you know, hadn't taken any classes on marketing. I didn't know anything about marketing. And I remember going to the VP in charge of my department and saying, look, like I am willing to invest time in learning how to do this. Okay. Like learning how to really do this, not just the futzing around and everything I'm doing. If, if the company would just pay for me to take some night classes, Ah, you know, and in college and learn some real marketing. Mm -hmm. So some of the theory and some of the practices and everything. And I remember him saying, him, he came back to me. He said something like, you know, if you want to buy some books on the topic, we'll reimburse you. <sighs> and I was just like, really? And I ended up doing that. I but mean, I'm guessing, so did they not have a tuition reimbursement program? 
because most most big companies do. Well, you know, and encourage that. They did not. Okay. They did not. And after talking to some people who'd been at the company longer, I came to realize that this was a very paranoid thing. This was oh, we don't want to do this because if we make them better employees, then they're going to leave and somebody else is going to get the benefit of what we do. Uh, okay. Which is extremely short-sighted. Of course. Very understandable, but extremely short-sighted. And I kind of wonder, like, if you are a publisher and you say to Morgan Baden, hey, we will pay you $100,000 a year to be on staff. That will be your salary. You'll have health insurance and benefits. And whenever you finish writing something, we will... You know, we'll, we'll publish it, but you're not going to get any, any royalties and you're only going to get 10% of the movie or whatever. Uh Right. And you're like, Hey, stability sounds great. Right. So you go ahead and do it. And then they make you huge. Yeah. And then you go, I quit. And I'm going to go over to this other publisher Uh, because they're going to give me a better deal. Right. And now they have just built you up and given you that stability and you're going somewhere else. Yeah. Now, the answer to that is, you know, okay, you got to compete. Like, yeah. you know, you, you got to make it a good offer. Right. But I can understand. They can come back with a counter. Right now, publishers have a lot of power until an author gets to a certain point. Yeah. And so, in a way, it kind of is in their best interest not to let an author get to that certain point. I don't know. I'm going to disagree with you on this. I'm not saying that that's going through saying. anybody's mind, but I'm just saying there is a negative incentive there. Well, no, because the publisher is still making tons of money. Right. But if you have a book that does hugely well for your publisher and then you go to another publisher, that other publisher reaps the benefit of everything they did to make you big in the first place. But the first publisher is still getting all your backlist sales and the second publisher has had to pay you a whole bunch more money than the first publisher did. That's true. That's true. Every possible solution has its own problems, obviously. Yes. All right. So now we've talked about doom and gloom. (laughs) <laughs> Let's talk about something good. Wait, you know it's a Barry-led episode when we talk about doom and gloom. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it just works out this way, really. Um, you did something the other night. You sat down at the dining room table. Yep. And tell everybody what you did. You guys, I wrote. She wrote! I don't even know what to say about it other than I wrote. Yeah. You're yeah. working on something new. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's one of the things that it's one of the projects that had been in the hopper and I don't even know what it was about the other day that made me kick myself in the ass, I guess, and be like, just sit down and write, even if it's 20 flipping minutes, yeah. which I think that's all it was. It was like 20 to 30 minutes. Um, but I did it. You know, I was suddenly like, I don't feel like sitting on the couch and you know, browsing Facebook, like I've been doing the past (laughs) however many months. And then I took your temperature to make sure you're okay. (laughs) Made some phone calls. Um, anyway, no, so it was great. So I sat down and wrote the easy thing was, um, this is the chapter book that I've already outlined. So every chapter is already, like I said, outlined. I have a a goal. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think I sort of had a little talk with myself and I was like, self, you already know the story. Like, just right. sit down and write it. Yep. So, um, so that's from doing. That's great. Yeah, I'm really, I'm pleased. I'm really excited. Yeah. I'm really happy. Um, I, I didn't want to jinx it, so I didn't even talk to you about it for a couple of days. Yeah, yeah. After you sat true. down and did it, because I was like, I don't, I don't want to break the spell. I don't want to break the spell. <laughs> so that's really great. Yeah, and I mean, I'm going to be doing it several times this week. That's my plan. That's great. Yeah. Now you teased something last week. Yeah. And now you have to deliver. Yeah. Um, you know, we're we're getting close to the end of the episode, <laughs> but I, I guess I should talk about it. So we saw Hamilton yep. recently. 
which is... It's this little show. You may not have heard of it. About an obscure figure in American history. We recommend, you know, seeking out tickets. Um, they're really easy to find. They're, they're very everywhere. easy to get. Just they're show cheap. up the day of. Yeah, you'll be You fine. know, like if you're in New York... People just, are... They're giving yeah, them they're away. They're giving them away because nobody wants to see it. Anyway, we saw Hamilton. Um, and I, I alluded last week to... Um, to a, the book that I had written before Fanboy and Goth Girl, which I've spoken about a lot, but I've never really talked about what it was. And I guess now I will <laughs> because it was about Alexander Hamilton. Mm-hmm. It was a novel about Alexander Hamilton. So keep in mind, you listeners, he wrote this. I started years this ago? in, I started this in probably 99. Okay. So wow. 17, 17 years, years ago. ago. Um, and I went through several drafts and I put it aside for a couple of years and then I came back to it. And, uh, probably around 2003, 2004, I started showing it around and I was getting an interesting response to it. Um, and then, uh, and then I wrote fanboy and goth girl and everything went in a different direction from there. Mm-hmm. I bring it up because it was very interesting to see Hamilton. And I think part of what has made people so in love with this show is that they didn't know these things. Mm-hmm. They didn't know who he was. They didn't know what he was. They didn't know much about him. And he is such an important figure in American history. Right. It is almost impossible to overstate his importance to American history. And yet, this very strange thing happened in the 19th century where everybody just stopped talking about him. Yeah. And I was always fascinated by him. So I read all these books about him and these biographies, and I wrote, I wrote a novel about him. And... So then when Hamilton, the show became big, I was a little pissed. I was a little angry because I was like, no, I'm the guy who's supposed to make Hamilton big again. Like I'm the guy. I'm going to make Hamilton happen. I'm supposed to make that happen. And this guy who like used to write for Sesame Street is going to make it happen. So I was a little annoyed and we saw the show and the show, the show is great. I, I think I probably enjoyed it a little less than most people because I knew I'm like, oh, now this will happen. Now this will happen. Now this will happen. Well, you also said that you guys use the same source material, right? Well, I mean, I actually wonder about his source material. I know he read um, Ron Chernow's book on Hamilton, which I did as well. But there were also other books that I read about Hamilton that I wonder if he read. Okay. Uh, there was a wonderful one written by Forrest McDonald, which to me was just a amazing, amazing biography of Hamilton. Um, and one of the things McDonald says at the beginning of the book is it's difficult to write a biography when your subject is a better writer than you are Wow! because Hamilton was a damn good writer. Yeah. And I never thought about that. I'm like, yeah, it's tough to, yeah. to write about somebody who's such a good writer yeah. himself. Um, so I, I wonder what some of, uh, um, uh, his, his other, his other sources were, um, and, you know, there were things he didn't do that I would have done, obviously, yeah, and, yeah. and things he didn't approach. Uh, but in the whole, I'm just glad that more people are talking about Alexander yeah, Hamilton because yeah. he's awesome. But it is it does put you in an interesting position because you actually gave me this manuscript, what, a, I don't know, six months ago, nine months ago? more than that, I think. Okay. But, yeah. Let's say last, let's say 2015. I don't remember. Yeah. Um, to read because you were thinking then of bringing it out and doing something with yeah. it again. And we had a whole discussion about, well... Does the fact, does the existence of Hamilton the musical and its success position your manuscript better or worse right. than it would have had that musical right. not happened? Right. Um, because are you hopping on a bandwagon in a bad way or in a good way? Exactly. And it's really hard to tell those things. And, and I have no idea 
And I also, there's a part of me that the, the egotistical part of me yeah. that does not want people to think, oh, of course, now everybody's writing about Hamilton. Right. It's like, no, I did this in 1999, people. Yeah. He was working on Sesame Street. Like, and, you know, yeah, so there's a part of me that's just like, ah, screw it. I'll just shove it away in a drawer. Right. You know? Um, there's another part of me that's like, maybe I'll just take the unedited, unmassaged manuscript that I have now and just throw it up online for people to see as a curiosity. But then, yeah, there's a part of me that's like, no, I should take three, four months, sit down, really, really, work, on really work on this thing and yeah. see what I can do with it. And I don't know what to do. Yeah. I just, I have no idea. It, it's a really interesting question. And I'm, I would love to hear other stories of writers who faced something similar. Yeah. Where you write something, yeah. you put your heart and soul into it and then something else beats you to the punch. Well, and I always think of, um, big magic, the book by Elizabeth Gilbert who wrote eat, pray, love. Mm. And I've talked about this on the podcast before, but she's, uh, she talks in the book about this idea that there are, um, ideas floating around in the universe. Yeah. And if you happen to catch one. You only have it for a limited time, so you've got to do it. And she talks about she had sold a book uh, with this certain plot line, and she's in the book, she rehashes the plot line. And as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, wait, I read this book by Ann Patchett. And sure enough, then the story is that uh, she put that book on hold to go travel and do some other things. And when she came back to the States, she read The Book Deal by Ann Patchett, which was a very similar plot, right. which was an like not a common plot here. So... Um, and she and Anne had a great laugh about it and, and talked about it and whatnot. But but it is funny. The difference here, of course, is the, the 20 years difference here yeah. between your manuscript. Although I'm sure Lin-Manuel Miranda started working on this, what, five years ago minimum. So um, so 15-year, you know, 12-year yeah. difference. Yeah. But anyway, it's really interesting where do – this idea of where do ideas come from and um, if you were working on something a long time ago and – when is the time to, to rework on it right. based on yeah, pop and, culture? And, and I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know what the answer is. And I also feel like every day that I delay deciding you're, ma- you're makes the problem worse. Yeah, yeah. Um, the but, delay but, is the decision. But I'm so. still powerless to force myself to make, make a decision. So I, I just don't know. It's I a really know. cool manuscript for it, what it's worth. It's such a, it's such a weird yep. thing. I mean... It has so many elements to it. And this, again, is the book that, you know, I talked about last time where people said, hey, it's interesting, but I don't know what bookshelf to put it on. Yeah. I mean, it's a and, real conglomerate. I mean, now you put it on the Hamilton bookshelf, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, well. So I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. But, uh, there, but there's there's the answer to the tease from last week. Yes. Yes. There's also something else that you brought up after we saw Hamilton because we were talking about it. And I was, of course, talking about my admiration of him and my obsession with him. And you said at one point, like, do you feel like a kinship to him? Ah, yeah. And I thought you were talking about Lin-Manuel Miranda Uh because we had both written something about, you know, about Hamilton trying to bring him back into the popular uh, mind. And and I said, well, not really. And then you said, no, I mean Alexander Hamilton. Uh And that to me is like a blow your mind question because, I mean... He's like a god. I mean, like, no, you, no, I feel no kinship to him no, at all like, because he is. No, I don't, I don't mean in a, um, in that way. I mean more of a, I don't know, everyone has their, maybe not everyone, but like, I certainly have favorite historical figures yeah. or favorite literary figures or favorite actresses or whatever right. that I feel, um, a special bond towards yeah. or with for no reason that I can really yeah. explain. And, you know, you've written a book about the guy. He, he, What's the reason? He, he's just a guy that 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 I worship from afar, you know, yeah. from, from the distance of history. Um, you know, if if I ever met Bruce Springsteen, 
I would probably be pretty tongue-tied, but I think I could carry on a conversation with him. Okay. If I ever met Alexander Hamilton, I'd probably just faint dead away. Wow. Um, wow. Like, you just cannot... Like, I, I've got a fairly healthy ego. I think I'm a talented writer. I think I'm a smart guy. I think I'm perceptive. Yeah, we know. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, he's just a genius. Yeah. I mean, beyond genius. And, I mean, I went to school with a lot of really smart, talented mm-hmm. people. And then you just look back at him and you're like, wow, like we are still a couple hundred years later dealing with the reverberations yeah. of the things he did. Yeah. Um, and that's just unbelievable. You can't say that about many people. True. So. All right. So this has been True Confessions <laughs> with Barry and Morgan. Now, thank you all for listening. That's it for us this week. We will be back next week, of course. In the meantime, visit us at writinginreallife.com. Leave comments. Uh, check out the show notes. Follow us on Twitter at WIRL Podcast and subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. We love that. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.